Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In the first essay of the genealogy of morals, particularly in chapters one, two, and three, we see these discussions of English psychologists, references to people who they're on the right track in a certain way, but they also go about things in the wrong manner and don't provide us with a genuine genealogy of morals that, that Nietzsche himself is going to take himself to provide in in this work. And there's a number of puzzles that arise when it comes to this. The first question we can ask is, well, who does he mean? Who is he referring to? Who are these English psychologists? We have two names that are being mentioned in the course of this. And it would be very tempting for the casual reader to say, aha, Paul Ray, Herbert Spencer, those are our English psychologists. And there's some problems with taking that point of view. Herbert Spencer, okay, he is an English psychologist, right? He's also a philosopher and a writer on a whole bunch of different subjects. He's one of these people who very few people read today, but who was a very important part of the philosophical scene in not just England, but also America and Europe in the 19th century, particularly the late 19th century. But when he's being mentioned, he's being mentioned as not falling into the same mistake as the English psychologists, as we'll talk about with Nietzsche's second main criticism, the implausibility of this forgetting. So Spencer might exemplify this to some degree, but he's also, if he is within the English psychologist, he's on the outside of the circle. What about this guy, Paul Ray, who gets mentioned in the beginning, in, in the preface of the work? Ray was actually a friend of Nietzsche, but Ray is not English. And so that seems to raise a problem. He's actually from Prussia. So can he be one of the English psychologists? Well, Nietzsche tells us this. The first impulse to publish something of my hypotheses concerning the origin of morality was given me by a clear, tidy, and shrewd, also precocious little book in which I encountered distinctly for the first time an upside down and perverse species of genealogical hypothesis that attracted me with that power of attraction with everything contrary, everything antipodal possesses. The title of the little book was The Origin of the Moral Sensations. Its author, Dr. Paul Ray, the year in which it appeared, 1877. Perhaps I've never read anything to which I would have said to myself, no proposition by proposition, conclusion by conclusion, to the extent that I did with this book. Now, I left out a, a little phrase in that, and we'll add it here. So for the first time, a perverse species of genealogical hypothesis, the genuinely English type. So although Ray himself is not ethnically English, Nietzsche seems to be saying that Ray, who he knew quite well and actually traveled with, was in fact of the English type. So maybe he can be placed in here. Who would the others be? Well, some people have suggested he's reaching way back and, you know, Hobbes and Hume. That's pretty implausible. It seems more like, although there, there are cases to be made, they are adopting kind of a genealogical approach to at least certain things when it comes to morality, but it's really impossible to say. And anybody who tries to tell you they know exactly who Nietzsche means is either deluded or, or lying to you. 
So we can instead focus on what is Nietzsche's criticism? He thinks that they are getting something right, sort of. They're taking a genealogical or a critical approach. And what do we mean by that? So they are looking at moral concepts and sentiments and vocabulary and sort of tracing it back to its, its origins. Now, tracing these things back to their origins means telling a kind of story of development. And they have a story of development, but their story has to do with utility and the group dynamics and things like that. And Nietzsche thinks that that's actually wrong. He also speculates a bit about what we can call their motives. And this is very typical of Nietzsche. He's not just interested in what people are saying and not just interested in why they're saying it in the sense of what are the justifications. He's also interested in what are their actual motives? What are they trying to achieve by saying things in this way? Let's look at chapter one. He says that they are no easy riddle. I confess that as living riddles, they even possess one essential advantage over their books. They're interesting. <laughs> These people are interesting, even though their books are boring. These English psychologists, what do they really want? We always discover them at the same task, dragging the partie entus, the shameful bits of our inner world into the foreground and seeking the truly effective and directing agent, that which has been decisive in its evolution in just that place where the intellectual pride of man would least desire to find it in the vis inertia of habit, for example, or forgetfulness, or in a blind and chance mechanistic hooking together of ideas, or in something purely passive, automatic, reflexive, molecular, and thoroughly stupid. What is it that always drives these psychologists in the, just this direction? Why are they engaging in this demythologizing or demystifying, bringing things to light about stuff and saying, ah, it's just this that's going on. We might ask similar things about similar genealogists in the present. Oh, it's just neurology, right? <laughs> it's just brain states. Evolutionary biology, put us in this way. Nietzsche would say those people are basically like the English psychologists. So he, he asks, is it a secret, malicious, vulgar, perhaps self-deceiving instinct for belittling man or a pessimistic suspicion, mistrust of disappointed idealists, or a petty subterranean hostility and rancor towards Christianity and Plato, or a lascivious taste for the grotesque, the painfully paradoxical, the questionable and absurd in existence, or finally something of each of them, a little vulgarity, a little gloominess, a little anti-Christianity, a little itching and need for spice. Is it any of these negative things? Is that why people are engaging in that? And you can say for some of them, yeah, maybe this guy or this person over here, just like we can in the present. And Nietzsche says, I rebel at the idea that they are just creeping around like frogs. I don't believe it. And if one may be allowed to hope where one does not know, I hope from my heart they may be the reverse of that, that these investigators and microscopists of the soul may be fundamentally brave, proud, and magnanimous animals who know how to keep their hearts as well as sufferings in bound and have trained themselves to sacrifice all desirability to truth, every truth. And so he's trying to put on, you know, the best face possible for these people. Maybe some of them actually do fit that. We don't, again, we don't know because we don't know who these English psychologists are. Nietzsche does think that they've got some things fundamentally wrong. 
And by seeing this, we get to glimpse what his own project is going to be in the genealogy. So the big criticism right off the bat is they claim to be doing something that's historical, but they're really ahistorical. And this is actually quite a good criticism of this. By the way, a similar criticism gets made by Jean-Jacques Rousseau of Thomas Hobbes and other you know, people talking about the state of nature and social contract, that what they're doing is they are interjecting the human beings of the present into a story about how human beings developed from the past. And they're taking wrongly the array of sentiments and habits and you know dynamics that we have in the present as being determinative of primitive human beings. So he tells us, it's certain that the historical spirit is lacking in them, that all the good spirits of history have left them in the lurch, as is the hallowed nature with with philosophers, the thinking of all of them is by its nature unhistorical. They've bungled their moral genealogy because the task was to investigate the origin of the concept and judgment good. So where did this notion of good come from? Is it something just basic and primitive or can we attribute it to something? And notice what he's saying here. It's the judgment that we're interested in, not just the word itself. So what's the problem? Nietzsche says that they are creating a narrative that essentially circles around and makes central concepts that are coming from an English kind of psychology. And what are these key concepts? Utility, forgetting, habit, and error. And this is where we might be tempted to say, okay, maybe Hume is part of this picture, or maybe it's Jeremy Bentham, or maybe it's John Stuart Mill, or maybe it is indeed Hobbes, because some of these things do come to light, even though Hobbes and Hume aren't utilitarians. Hume certainly uses the word utility an awful lot to explain things. So what is their point of view? Nietzsche says, originally one approved unegoistic actions and called them good from the point of view of those to whom they were done. So those to whom those actions are useful. So we're, we're cavemen and I start a fire and I welcome you to the fire. And you're like, oh, that's nice. I don't have to start my own fire, which is a real work for me. And I'm going to call that action good because it benefits me. It has usefulness for me, right? And then if you do something like that for me, I'm like, oh, that's good. And eventually we use the word good for these unegoistic actions. And he says, later one forgot how these uh, approval originated and simply because unegoistic actions were always habitually praised as good, one also felt them to be good. So there's an affect developed, right? As if they were something good in themselves. And he says, this is typical English psychologizing, right? <laughs> You have the, the typical traits of the idiosyncrasy of these people as the basis of an evaluation of which the higher person has been proud as though it were kind of a prerogative of the human being as such. And Nietzsche says, look, this is implausible. It didn't happen this way. Where's your historical evidence? You know, you're just sort of like telling a cool story that a maybe thing that you elevate into, well, it must have turned out this way. And Nietzsche also says another thing that's really interesting here too. He says, you're looking for the value judgment in the wrong, as he says, place, but really we can say in the wrong persons. 
And so he tells us, it's plain to me that in this theory, the source of the concept good has been sought and established in the wrong place. The judgment good did not originate with those to whom goodness was shown. Rather, it was the good themselves who felt and established themselves in their actions as good, that is of the first rank. And so we're going to go into that when we talk about the primary valuation. So Nietzsche is saying your history is not a history to begin with, and it's actually wrong. And if we go back into history and we look at how these terms were used by people, it's actually the, the people who are labeled as good, who are calling themselves good, not the ones who are benefiting other people, there's something else going on here. So that's important. And he also says that the English psychologists are essentially reflective of their own times and of the dominant form of morality, which Nietzsche is going to call a number of different things, but herd morality is one of them. He says, it was only when aristocratic value judgments declined that this whole antithesis, egoistic, unegoistic, obtruded itself more and more on the human conscience. It is, to speak in my own language, the herd instinct that through this antithesis at last gets its word and its words in. And so that is what these people, these English psychologists are taking as their starting point, not realizing that that itself is the product of historical developments and sort of a set of blinders to put on. So they're, they're getting things wrong. Criticism number two is, is quite interesting. He says this forgetting that's supposed to have happened is very implausible. You're telling a story that if we strictly look at it, we shouldn't believe in. So he asks, how is this forgetting of the useful or to other people actions possible? And he says, why would we forget that? It's more likely that we would highlight it. And here's where he credits Spencer for getting something right. He's like, listen, Herbert Spencer says that this is what's driving things within the group and within morality. But he, he leaves out this aspect of forgetting that is, as Nietzsche says, impossible. The opposite, he says, must have been the case. If our focus is on usefulness of one's actions to other people, and we think that the value judgment good comes in in that way, which is what herd morality is, then the more useful things are, the more we're going to pay attention to it, the more it's going to get reinforced. So these are some, some pretty solid criticisms from Nietzsche's perspective. And he's saying that the English psychologists, they can get the ball rolling, but now we need a different sort of approach to a genuine genealogy of morals. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.